everyone. Welcome to Noun at Talk, the podcast all about nouns. This is a show where we interview members of the DAO and project builders in the ecosystem. I'm your host, CPT, and today I'm chatting with Brian Flynn, the CEO and co-founder of Rabbit Hole. In this episode, we discuss on-chain identity and reputation, how DAOs can coordinate better, and then we deep dive into nouns. We talk about experimenting with governance, lessons learned from Prop House, and much more. I always enjoy chatting with Brian and I appreciate his insights a lot. And as always, you can find Now to Talk wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out on Twitter at CDT underscore ETH. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hey, Brian. Good morning. Thanks for being here. How's it going? Thanks for having me. It's going great. Really excited to do this. There's a lot that I want to talk about. So really excited to just dig into it. Yeah, no, excited to do it. Let's, let's go. Okay, so I've heard, you know, a bunch of interviews with you. And I've heard your backstory in different ways several times. But I do want to hear about the Counter Strike days. Take me back to your professional <laughs> gaming days. And yeah, just talk to me about that. Yeah, totally. So I was one of those players that liked to be the best in the shittiest games. <laughs> <laughs> I played Counter-Strike 1.6, but I was by far no means the best, right? I, I was definitely traveling around and playing in tournaments, but it was winning, you know, r- really bad prize money and coming in like second or third place. It, it was by no means glorious. There was all these other first-person shooters that wanted to be like Counter-Strike back then. Team Fortress 2 was probably one of the games that I was probably more well-known for. Like Everyone knows Counter-Strike as opposed to Team Fortress 2, right? And it was interesting when people ask, like, what is your background? It's like, yeah, I could tell you all about these 15 games that I was top five in the world in, but Counter-Strike is the one that kind of everyone knows and was also, you know, the first one I got started with. So there's a whole host of history there. But first person shooters were the thing that kind of was my lifeblood in high school. My parents would always get angry at me because I was just skipping school and going to library to play Counter-Strike and a bunch of other games at the time. And they found out that it was I had really bad grades because I was just found out one day they were just skipping school. So <laughs> those were the days and now I'm here. So it definitely gave me sort of that competitive side to me. But yeah. Can you tell me maybe one key story or the farthest you went or the most memorable tournament or just something else? Yeah. Okay, this is a really random story. So I played this game called Firefall, which I was probably top three in the world at. And it coincided with my senior year high school trip to Disney. And the senior year trip to Disney was this trip that everyone in the school went to. And, and it was sort of the most important thing. And everyone looked forward to it. So it, it was the same day as the championship for this game that had like $100,000 on the line, which was a lot of money at the time for just like esports and fresh gaming in general. And a whole bunch of VCs kind of this money into this game. Whatever. And so I was, I was sort of torn between you know going to Disney or, or playing in this professional tournament uh, because no one really knew that I was like playing these fresh tournaments like in high school at the time. And I ended up going to Disney, but sort of sneaking into the computer lab, like into a hotel and playing this tournament. And the ping was just so bad at the time that I was just lagging like crazy. But we ended up winning and like the last possible second. But it, it, it was always funny because it was sort of like balancing being someone in high school trying to like be have a lot of friends and like and like good grades and also like being like professional player at the time before like esports was not really doing that well before <laughs> before League of Legends started getting all this money into esports and people actually having professional careers out of it. These were sort of the days with like Justin TV or just a thing and no one even knew what Twitch was yet. So you mentioned being top three in the world, just kind of brushing by like that's not a big deal. 
Let's, let's be honest, like these games, especially that game itself, like when we have like thousands of players, right? This, is, this isn't like hundreds of thousands of millions of players. So, <laughs> But at least from your perspective back in high school, are you thinking like, hey, I'm really good at this. I mean, high school, you're looking towards college, you're looking, you know, you're very future minded. Are you thinking like, hey, this is it? This is my thing? Yeah, I was at the time. It was really difficult because I, I remember like going to my parents and saying like, hey, esports is going to be like a $50 billion industry and there's, you know, gaming is already like coming here, blah, 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 like in 10 years, whatever. And at the time, I remember my parents like sending me articles of people who are professional gamers and ended up working like in retail and not really doing much with their lives. <laughs> and it was sort of this, this constant like back and forth between, you know, professional gaming has no future. And I ended up like, okay, fine, I'll go like traditional college route instead of playing games professionally uh, they, they ended up winning that battle <laughs> but it was definitely this constant battle i mean we're talking like 2011 like at the time before esports had this all this money so it was definitely complicated at the time yeah to touch on something you've always struck me as someone who like has really deep conviction and i remember you saying something in an interview once you'd rather be right than be rich and even in high school you seem to have like this deep conviction whether it be about esports or anything else and it seems to translate throughout where do you think that comes from for you personally? Oh, man. Uh, we can have the existential answer or the deep family issue uh, <laughs> answer or, or whatnot. But I, I think it really comes from just trying to see truth in life, right? I mean, I'm kind of like stoic at heart and really want to make sure that anything that I'm doing, I'm sort of like seeking truth. I think we can, we can kind of go into the crypto side of it, but I see a lot of skepticism. I'm, I'm very skeptic person in general, especially in crypto. And it's been a long time trying to develop this conviction and trust my gut on the uncertain things. I think I've had the opportunity to do it over the course of the last 15 years of my life or so. But yeah, I don't know if it comes from like a specific thing besides just being a stoic and, and really just trying to figure out like what is the truth in, in life. Yeah. So as far as trying to like figure that out and parse that out, something else I've noticed is that throughout your career, writing has been a big part of it. You had, what was it, jam sessions? Yeah, And you had the nifty news. And I mean, that even translates to Twitter, right? You tend to like yeah. pontificate on Twitter and question things and have these broader discussions. So what does writing do for you? Yeah, it played a couple parts in, in, in my career. So when I was first getting into crypto, I mean, this was like around like ICR, there wasn't much to do, right? <laughs> Everyone was just doing scam ICOs, really wasn't tangible applications happening. People use like DDAX and IDEX, whatever, to kind of get the latest ICO. But in terms of actual applications that people use in crypto, it didn't exist. CryptoKitties happens end of 2017. And all of a sudden, people were like, holy shit, like this is something, you know, it has 500 users, which is like insane at the time. And I saw writing as sort of a interesting way into just getting deeper into crypto and immersing myself. And so I just started writing about different things happening in the NFT space. I'm writing about things like crypto celebrities, where you can breed different celebrities together. Breeding was like the hot thing at the time before like 10k PFPs and all these other cool NFT projects. But writing really helped me secure my first gig at OpenSea. And so was there for a bit. And moved on to Dapper Labs. I stayed with writing kind of throughout the years, just kind of to give a accountability to myself to keep up with what's happening in the space. And so I would be you know, furiously attached to Twitter, just trying to keep up with what is happening in NFTs, what is happening on the consumer application side of crypto. And that sort of translated into building really good mental models of what works and what doesn't. So I can even now recall back to three years ago and say what was happening in the space and what specific months just because I was able to document what was happening 
in each of the few weeks. And when I'm building products now, it, it's really helpful because I can just recall of like what worked between 2018 and 2020. And I'm seeing a lot of the same mistakes happen in sort of the crypto space, but I can take that into my own knowledge and make sure that I'm learning from it when building new products. Yeah. Do you have a piece of writing? I mean, it could be a tweet or longer form post that change your life the most? I don't mean to make it sound more grandiose than it was, but either because of effects that it had from attention or just what it did kind of intrinsically for you to write stuff down. Yeah. So I wrote this piece back, okay, May 18th, 2018, decentralizing the minting of non-fungible tokens. How designers and curators can align incentives to create awesome brands and experiences in a decentralized manner. This was the piece that it really clicked with me like for the first time that it's possible for a group of people to come together and with smart contracts and mint NFTs, which ironically is kind of what nouns is today in one hand. But even in early 2018, you were seeing the problem of people selling NFTs without a product. And that was kind of when the alarm bell started ringing for me. It was like, okay, there's no way that what's happening with NFTs is actually sustainable. People were doing land sales for their new virtual metaverse, like as early as early 2018, which people still do today in a couple of variations. This was the piece where like, wow, you could actually have a bunch of creators come together and mint these NFTs and actually have provenance to who actually had the ideas embedded first to get royalties. And so there was this one project that that stuck out to me that was actually created by the OpenSea founders and Dylan from Figma called ETHmoji at a hackathon where you can actually have, it was kind of like a gravatar for your Ethereum address. And you could have people have these different base components that had royalties attached to them. And it's kind of like potato head where you can piece all of them together. And when you piece all them together, it creates a unique hash of that composition so that no one can have the same ETHmoji. And as you use these different base components, you're, you're paying out the royalties to the base component owners. And I was like, holy shit, this was something pretty novel with NFTs that just opened up my eyes into how big NFTs were actually going to be because of the programmability aspect of it and not just being a JPEG. That was probably the first piece that was like, gave me a bunch of credibility into the space of like kind of looking to the future as well. Credibility in the space in the sense that it like did well online or you met people through it? Yeah, I think it was the piece where people like, oh, this is really interesting. People started to say, okay, I see why NFTs are much more than just crypto kitties and can be something that a bunch of people use in the future and kind of redefine what it even means to be a decentralized brand. So a ton of people started reaching out to me and wanted to talk more about it. And yeah, that's kind of the first piece that I was really excited about. Yeah, another thing from around that time, you were employee number one at OpenSea? Yeah, that's right. I was helping them out. They were just getting started at the time back in April 2018. And I was helping them out with sort of bringing on new projects into the space. I was only there for a few months. OpenSea founders said we're really good about preserving burn rate. And they had to unfortunately let me go later in the year just because they wanted to hunker down in the bear market and survive to the next bull, which panned out really well for them. And I respect them enormously. But yeah, I definitely learned a lot just even that short time of OpenSea. I mean, at the time, they only had like 50 users. That's crazy. <laughs> users were basically just buying like crypto celebrities and these different virtual swords in the game with no game actually being alive. So it, it kept being this question of like, okay, who wants to buy this thing in the first place? Which, you know, of course, is still like kind of a philosophical question today <laughs> in many cases. But OpenSea had a lot of competitors too at the time, which is also really interesting. And none of them are much around today because they just survived way past them over the years. Yeah. So you strike me as a very busy person who's both doing a lot, but also seems to stay on top of a lot of things. 
I'm curious about what an average day looks like for you on any given week. Unfortunately, it changes day to day very drastically, but I'll, I'll try to give the average if I heard to sum up like the last 360 days or so. So Rabbit Hole is my day job, right? I'm, I'm the CEO of, of Rabbit Hole, or a series of company and, and 10-person company right now. So that takes up 95% of my time. Now, I like to stay on top of what's due. The great thing about Rabbit Hole is we work with many projects in space, anyone from protocols themselves to they want to acquire new users, to brand new users getting to, to space for the first time, to different DAOs who want to use our credentials. And so to talk to many people kind of that are looking to just find those like high quality users or contributors or new users getting involved for the first time. So I, I need to stay up to date with what's new and what's happening because Rabbit Hole kind of plays this role of a curator. Right, where we're curating what's happening in the space for users to kind of transact with. What's really interesting about when I started Rabbit Hole was I didn't want to work on just a single protocol that was kind of just going to collect dust over the years, like a DeFi protocol, right? No, no, no shade to them, but that's kind of how I felt about DeFi at the time. I wanted something that was going to withstand the test of time as crypto starts to progress. Because even when I first started Rabbit Hole back in 2020, it was right before DeFi summer when only about 15 applications existed on chain or maybe only like 5,000 users in Ethereum across the board. And it was like, well, what is that thing that I can create that can just be there you know, 10 years from now that's, that's still creating value to the rest of the ecosystem? That was a long-winded, say, <laughs> long-winded way of saying yeah, I need to keep up with what's happening in the space for sort of my day job. Yeah. But going back to early days of Rabbit Hole, can you take it all the way back to Dripscore? Yeah, sure thing. When I worked at Dapper, I was working on Flow at the time, their L1. And the, the conversation was always like, how do we bring users from Ethereum into Flow? And this is, you know, the same problem that a bunch of other blockchains deal with. It's like how they just start siphoning users from different communities. And the logical products that, that was working at the time was just achievement score for your Ethereum address to dictate of how valuable of a user you actually are. And so, as I mentioned, there were only like 15 or 20 things that people actually used in Ethereum at the time. Ethereum was the number one blockchain. No one really used anything else. And very simply, if you did a contract on chain, you receive a score for doing that as well. And you can share out with your friends and it basically represents like your drip or how crypto native you are on chain. And that was sort of like the first thing that really clicked for me. Like, wow, a lot of users just love to show how much they've done on chain, even though that it's publicly available to everyone. And it really became this moment for me of like, wow, this is much bigger than building this for Flow, but building this for the entire kind of crypto ecosystem. And that's when I kind of had the realization of, okay, well, I should probably go do this off of my own. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that, that was kind of the, the drip score era that you know, was incubated at Dapper and then spun out into Rabbit Hole. And so when it gets spun out, what's the catalyst for that? Why the rebrand? Why the standalone thing? What kind of happened around that time? Had to rebuild it from scratch, right? It was a product that we worked on at Dapper, um, Dapper owned all IP. We just needed to rebuild it from scratch, very simply. So everything from the, all the code, all, all the IP, like none, none of it was in my property. So we just needed to do it from scratch. Sure. But when you're doing that, like any kind of, not a draft, but if you have to revisit something and you are building it from the ground up, whether it be like refactoring a code base to use a new design system or something, you take a moment to see like, well, what do we want to do differently since we're doing it from the ground up? Was there anything or several things that you reconsidered? 
Yeah. So when we were working on drip score, we had a lot of protocols reaching out to us and saying, hey, we really want to distribute our token to people with a certain score. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Why is that? Like, well, we want to just give our tokens to people who are actually doing things on chain instead of having their money on centralized exchanges. And I was like, okay, that logically makes sense. I remember Maker was sort of like the pioneer in the space in, in DeFi, and they wanted to just have more people own MKR because they wanted more people participating in MKR governance. And so when starting rabbit hole, token distribution was very top of mind for me. How can protocols just distribute their token to people who are actually going to use their token in the ecosystem as opposed to just having it sit on centralized exchanges somewhere? So that was kind of like the big insight at first. Yeah, and so maybe give just a really quick overview of how Rabbit Hole works with quests and skills for those who are listening and have never heard of Rabbit Hole before, before we dive deeper. Yeah, for sure. So Rabbit Hole, at the end of the day, is a token distribution platform. So we help qualify users and teach them skills, what they need to do in the space. So that is using DeFi, DAOs, and NFTs. They receive these credentials, and they use those credentials to access earning opportunities from protocols that we work with. So someone like Uniswap or Maker or Aave can distribute their own tokens to high-quality users and it's used for a retention and growth purposes. We do a lot of civil resistance as well. So we want to make sure that users are unique. So we use a software provider called BrightID and introducing some other additional subordinates measures in the future. But this builds a user's on-chain reputation, both from a unique personhood score, plus the credentials and skills that they're earning on-chain so that we can then serve them as protocols. And for those who don't know what civil resistance is, you just mean like me not opening two wallets, but I'm one person. Civil resistance can mean many things. It depends on how you interpret it. But the common definition of it is just the proof of personhood of uniqueness, right? So just not having two wallets per user, but instead of just having one. We do a lot of debate about this internally at Rabbit Hole, and we fundamentally believe that users having multiple addresses is a feature and not a bug of blockchains in the same way that, you know, if you're playing a MMO or, or some game, like you can have multiple characters and you don't want to just be limited to one character, right? And so that is something that we fundamentally believe as like one of our product principles and how we build for the space. So it's definitely something that's different than how other people describe civil resistance. But yeah, it's a super interesting topic that we invest a lot of our time in. So if you go to Rabbit Hole, you see there are different paths or quests, right? There's intro to NFTs, intros to DeFi and to DAOs. You talked about protocols approaching Rabbit Hole. Is that how it mostly happens? Do you guys pitch, hey, I think you guys would be a good addition to what we have going? Or what's the kind of relationship there? Yeah, so for the credentials and skills that we have on the platform today, we are curating those. We're choosing who are the best protocols for our users to know, to have like an understanding of space. And it's this taxonomy for someone to understand very quickly. Now, on the Quest side, it's twofold, right? It's us going out to protocols and doing external BD to help them find users. We definitely play this role of like a service provider in doing so. And sometimes they also will come to us and offer their own tokens as well to do a quest. What's interesting and kind of different than traditional models is that 
When we do external BD, that is actually through governance proposals most of the time. And so we're not selling to individuals, but we're selling to communities, which, you know, even back two years ago when we started doing this, I was kind of like, what the hell are you? How do you sell to governance? I mean, today, it's something like now, and it's it's very common that you have to sell into governance most of the time, right? But that, that's kind of how we do our process today. So we'll kind of give an overview of what the quest should accomplish, what kind of users we're looking to target, plays this definitely this role of like ad agency, right? Where we can say, here's what you can expect for the results of this quest, if it is deemed successful. Yeah, and how many, I don't know if you call them students or just people have come through Rabbit Hole? Right now we've had 750,000 users roughly <laughs> what? Um, come through Rabbit Hole. <laughs> That's insane. Congrats. That's crazy. Yeah, it's been awesome. Of course, it's always a question of those are user addresses, right? So how many of them are actually unique in some capacity? We have other numbers that do there. But in terms of people who are actually completing tasks for the first time in terms of user addresses, it's been awesome to see sort of the growth of doing it, right? We've always been about curating the best possible platforms for people to know and be very, very choosy of who we work with. And as a result, we kind of became known as like this education platform. Realistically, we don't spend a lot of time doing education. <laughs> but a lot of people know know us for doing education. It's because we're really, really good curators. And that's what we pride ourselves on, is having really good curation so that we're serving new users the highest quality protocols so they know that they're not going to get scammed, they're not going to get rug pulled, and can just learn something new that they haven't learned before in crypto. Yeah, it feels like sometimes it's a couple of things. It makes sense why people view it as school or education, right? But it's also like, it feels like a talent network. I remember you saying something like, rabbit hole be the best place to discover work. But you'd also mentioned before, people maybe, you know, out of high school or maybe not doing college and just you see a world where you dive into rabbit hole and just join crypto and learn things. Yeah, so this is kind of the dream, right? I'm not a believer in higher education. I think there's, you know, an alternative path for it, whatever, but that's kind of a disclaimer. But the dream is if work is moving to crypto, especially in this decentralized world where you're building up reputation, then it's very much your transaction history becomes your resume, right? Things that you've actually proven on chain that are objective. Here are your test scores, right? The same thing as like, here's the transaction history that I've proved on chain. I know I can do these things. And so it might look like 10, 20 years from now is there's a set of protocols that just are replaced for grades, right? Like K through 12. And you're starting to do these protocols and prove your way through the rabbit hole, through your journey. And then that is giving you then opportunities to earn tokens, which is essentially jobs. Right. And so you can imagine someone instead of going through middle school, here they are spinning up a new wallet, doing their first transaction, proving themselves in the training ground. And then all of a sudden they're be given these earning opportunities to be recruited into these different protocols and doing work either as a delegate or in some deeper capacity as these protocols become more complex. That is sort of the dream here in sort of a crypto first world. I mean, some may say it's kind of like dystopia, but in a much other sense of it, it's anyone in the world can now earn crypto without a bank account while staying anonymous at the same time. So it's a much different way of having anyone in the world ability to earn just by their proven skill on chain. It's much more accessible and much more meritocratic. Yeah, so we'll dive into all of that very soon. But it's interesting because I 
am the opposite of you. I have not been in crypto for a long time. I just hit a year in the space. Roughly a year ago, this month, I didn't have a wallet or ETH or know anything, right? And I'm also a developer. And so, like you said, crypto is so great for finding work. And I found a lot of work. And the downside is, and I've spoken to this before, that there's so much history and context I don't have. So when I entered the space, it was drinking from a fire hydrant just to understand what things are. I heard the word token. I had no idea what we were talking about. But I joined Nouns and I did a bunch of work and I really have not stopped working for literally the last year, which is great. And I love it. However, the other side of things is that I feel still very out of the loop almost as much as when I first joined because I haven't really been able to catch my breath, but also have the time to learn things. You know, I was actually personally digging into rabbit hole and I did the intro to NFTs one. And I have some friends that will probably laugh at this because I have literally had calls with friends not that long ago, by the way. So like, well, 10 months into the space, I quit my job and I work for nouns and I'm this crypto guy. Yet I've had to ask my friends privately on calls. Like one example is like, can you explain the Zora ecosystem to me? Because I just don't, I don't have the context of what all they do and how does it compare to OpenSea? These kind of questions, I may be too embarrassed to ask because there's just context I'm missing in general. What is Uniswap and why should I care? What is DeFi? Like yesterday, I ended up finishing the intro to NFTs one. And I, I just want to say it was great because for someone like me, who in one way is so entrenched in the ecosystem, but at the same time, mentally feels so on the outside at times, it was great because I did mint an NFT on Zora and I did create a mirror account. So it was really great. But there's like both a time trade off issue, but also what should I care about and why kind of issue of just crypto history and context that like even someone like me, again, it's so ironic to be so in the space and feel like I know just as little as I did about the ecosystem from the first day because I've just I've just been working. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that feeling never goes away. That's the first thing I'll say. I have that feeling all the time, even from working in the space that there's probably thousands of things happening in the space now that I just have no idea what they are, especially as it relates to things like blockchain scaling and kind of the trenches of DeFi and art garblers was a big thing that people were talking about recently. I had no idea what it was and all people, smart people are talking about it, right? That feeling just never goes away. So I wouldn't feel too bad about that. I think it's everyone sort of has that feeling <laughs> in the space. And that, that's why we really pride ourselves on, hey, these are the things that will teach you sort of the base across DeFi DAOs and NFTs and give you that mental model of what it actually means to understand at least the basic primitives because everything else is kind of just a little twist off of that, right? Multi-sigs are always going to be the same. On-chain governance is always going to be the same. Maybe, I mean, maybe not, but you got to get the basic idea, but it's, it's how do you just create those mental models so then when you see something new, you can just apply it to yourself. Yeah. So let's dig into on-chain identity and reputation. I have a bunch of questions because I still don't think I understand a lot of it. Again, a year later, I still feel like I'm catching up from day one about a lot of things. And it's talked about a lot. And let's just go ahead and level set and talk about the problem with identity and reputation today or in the traditional kind of Web2 space, whether it be resumes, etc. I know you've talked about social capital and your issues with that. So maybe just speak on the issues as things are today. Yeah, totally. So one of the problems 
with crypto communities today is that you have to prove yourself before that you get a job, right? And crypto communities don't like traditional resumes. They don't care about that. But what they care about is come into the Discord and start contributing. And by contributing, you'll build up a reputation and people will start to know you and then you'll be given more and more work. The classic joke about this in the DAO space was sort of the best way to get onboarded into DAOs is to just join a DAO and start joining Discord. But that's not efficient, right? It's a lot of people who've built up their reputation over the years don't want to start from scratch. And there's really no shared basis in crypto of like what it actually means to have some like baseline skill. And what we want to do at Rabbit Hole and a lot of things I've been thinking about is what does it mean to just start having a baseline reputation so that when you do join a community, people can trust you more, right? Especially as the world starts moving to more anonymous. How can you actually trust this person that if you give them this grant money that they're going to carry through with their job? You might have seen them in the community in the past couple of weeks, but are they actually going to carry through with it? That's kind of become the biggest problem is as more people are able to create these anonymous accounts, it's so hard to say, who do you actually trust? And, and Twitter has such a chokehold on the space for the past previous few years, right? I always say that if you want to get rich in crypto, the easiest way to do that is to just build up a following, buy a token and shill it. That is the easiest way to get rich. And people have been doing that in you know, the past couple of years, right? Investors do that all the time and traders do that all the time. But if we actually want to move to a world where your on-chain reputation is sort of your baseline, then we can actually start to say, hey, like I can actually trust this person because we have a shared way of saying this piece of on-chain data represents this level of trust. If we want to make crypto more sustainable, these communities more sustainable, we need to create this foundation of trust and using on-chain data to kind of do that. So that is the fundamental problem here is like, how do we create this objective layer of trust where then we can build these different reputation systems on top of it rather than community-specific reputation? Yeah, for me, when I see or meet someone who's completely anonymous, I guess the first thing is, are they a friend of a friend? Can someone vouch for them? Or do they have a Twitter? And the signals, I don't really value like follower count, but I think a stronger metric is probably like who that I follow follows them, et cetera, et cetera. Just trying to to grab onto anything to build some context. But to be honest, and I, I don't know this because I'm a dev or this is just me, who I am personally. For me, most people are like, again, this sounds harsh, but it's like untrustworthy until product shipped or project shipped. Like your work tells me something about you. I have no problem trusting anonymous people that I've met in this space based off the work I know. I don't need to know anything else. And a project shipped and my respect or whatever for that project or what the community around it. I know there's NFT project issues with that, but I also know of plenty of smart devs that have done stuff that like their work kind of is their reputation, you know? But when it comes to on-chain identity and work, I know you've mentioned about a demonstration of knowledge versus someone's day-to-day -day work. Can you go into that some? Yeah. So the ideal scenario is you can look at someone's transaction history and know how knowledgeable they are or, or know their ability to work similar to their portfolio, their GitHub, their resume, et cetera. The reality is where crypto is today is not exactly there, right? 
no one really cares if you've made a swap or, you know, have lent out some tokens or, but I mean, yeah, that's contrary to rabbit hole, but it will get there. As blockchains start to scale, as these protocols become more complex, you can now start build these new fundamental reputation systems on top of it. For example, if you've passed a successful governance proposal before, that is something that you can actually measure on chain, and that's a pretty hard action to do. That's something where you're like, oh, shit, like you can actually prove that you can be a contributor and, and contribute to a DAO. Or you can run an ETH2 validator node, which also takes a lot of skill. You need the capital to do it on the machine, right, to do that and say, hey, I can do this as well. Once you start having these things and attaching it to your identity, then it's like, okay, here are some things that can create this baseline reputation of something that is then you can then be provable on chain. So it's still really early days. It's going to take a while for us to start getting there. I think a lot of people are using sort of subjective reputation systems right now in this space where the more community specific. Some projects like Coordinate, for example, and SourceCred are probably the two most important ones of how do you actually build reputations within communities from your peers, people that you work with. But those things are really hard to scale because once you go outside of those communities, you're starting from zero all over again. And so that's kind of what we're working with right now. Yeah, I think when I first started hearing about this concept, I just got a little concerned because like I was saying about my lack of context for this space, I also have like a lack of maybe action because again, I, I feel like I haven't stopped working for a year, but I don't do many things on chain. I guess I did want to ask about payments. Do you count that as a form of on-chain activity? Because I don't swap, I don't buy and sell NFTs. I don't do anything. I feel really boring in that respect. But I do push a lot of code. My GitHub and like, I guess my Twitter follower in a secondary place, I know it's not as important, but like my GitHub, to be honest, is the only reputation that I think would really matter to anyone. But that's not on-chain. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, so... What I'll say is there are protocols out there like Radical that is sort of like a decentralized GitHub that do have PR commits on chain. And those are the types of systems and networks that are needed in order to bring something like code being something where you can build on chain reputation with. It's still way too early to have you know, someone like yourself who's not sort of day-to-day transactional activities start building an on-chain reputation. But I'm hopeful that we'll be able to get there because I, I completely agree with you that it's not feasible today. Do you think payments from certain organizations count or matter? I think if you're able to get payments from something like the Dow Treasury, that is something that's very valuable because then you can start mapping out, okay, well, this is a DAO that then had a on-chain governance proposal and paid out this contributor. That is something that's valuable. But if it's as simple as you're receiving some transfer payment on-chain from some other address, where well, that address is unknown, it could very much well be your own address, right? Where you're just trying to build the reputation on-chain, right? The thing that you're trying to protect against is bad actors, right? If you're able to get some benefit between just having a transfer event between two addresses, everyone's going to abuse that, right? No, that's fair. Yeah, I meant more from a trusted org or DAO, etc. Yeah, totally. I, yeah. Someone from like Nouns DAO would be a great example of that. Yeah. So maybe run through a couple other types of on-chain data or maybe some specific examples of things you'd like to see, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, I sort of touched on this earlier. There are two specific things that are really valuable today, right? One is, is this person a good governance contributor? Have they actually passed proposals on chain? Are they voting in different instances? Those are the things that be like, wow, it's valuable information for things like becoming a delegate, right, within an ecosystem. The second thing is securing the chain itself as a validator. So our home, in theory, right, is the Ethereum ecosystem. And if you are providing some service to that underlying infrastructure, that underlying well, those pipes, and that is something like, wow, you're doing your job as a citizen uh, of this underlying infrastructure. Those are two things that are kind of top of mind for me of, okay, here are two things that any community can use as some pieces of on-chain data. But as blockchains become more complex, I'm sure there's going to be so much more things that are hard to obtain and become other pieces of on-chain data. I think we're still in really early innings of what that could potentially look like. Do you think there's maybe a multiplier effect or some advantage to being a docs person in this space and having your on-chain activity? Like you, we know who you are. Same with me, most people know who I am. We both have like LinkedIn's and work history. Does that play into this at all? Or in your world, do you think we should stop thinking of it that way and just assume everything on chain? I think it's too early to say. I mean, if I were to become a founder today, I think there's just as much benefit as being docs as there is being, say, pseudonymous or anonymous. You know, two years ago, actually, to be an anonymous founder was pretty unheard of. But today, it's actually pretty its pretty normal to be an anonymous founder, at least, at least in crypto. Of course, there are some new trust that needs to be involved, but I think ever since DeFi Summer happened, it's became normalized to be an anonymous founder. And so I don't think there is that multiplier effect that exists anymore, but it did once exist. And we are moving in this direction of people becoming more anonymous, right? And so, it's likely that trend will continue. It's, it's hard to see a world in which, you know, the world becomes less anonymous over a period of time. And so just creating new building blocks of trust is just going to become way more important as people start to become more anonymous. And maybe a last question on this topic. Talk to me about the other side of things. So someone wants to look at someone's on-chain activity to verify whether they want to bring them on for a role or just a project or how do you go about parsing that information, especially if there's years or usually when people are looking for someone, are they looking for like, oh, I'm only looking for someone who did this quest or this series of quests at Rabbit Hole or if it's broader, how do you distill down and even figure out what's important and what's fluff? Yeah, so where on-chain data becomes useful in terms of work itself is the scale, right? It's saying that because these 50,000 users have done this thing on-chain, these 50,000 users are likely have an understanding of this work that's required to carry out the job. Once you start reducing that number and it becomes more in a scale of like tens of people and you're just like screening for like, you know, core contributor roles, on-chain data becomes a lot less important. But on-chain data is just filtering. How do you take large amount of users who really want to participate be like, okay, who's most likely to do the job? And so we think of our quest as like pieces of work in itself. And we're doing this work with tens of thousands of users over given months. And those on-chain data pieces provide a really valuable filter to find those users. Yeah. And moving on to these groups, to DAOs, 
You've spoken about DAO structure and coordination. What does it look like for a DAO to be firing on all cylinders or to be set up well? Yeah, I think in general, being able to be in a place where you can throw many darts at the wall at once is something that is a benefit of DAOs versus a corporation, right? How do you start funding many different things happening in the ecosystem at once and seeing what the ROI is itself? I don't think anyone in crypto has gotten this right besides DAOs. And I'm not just saying this because this is now a talk, right? But it starts from how do you just allocate capital as quickly as possible to see what works and what doesn't? And how do you improve on that? And I, I think that is, I, I know this is something we've talked about as well, but this is something that Nouns can learn from is, you know, once you fire on all cylinders and you're throwing the darts, how do you get that data to then improve upon that for the next round? That is the thing that's kind of missing from many DAOs right now. Yeah, and we're going to get the nouns very soon. <laughs> I'd heard you said before about DAOs retaining contributors as a good thing. But then more recently, I've seen you tweet the opposite. So look, people can change their mind. I'm just curious about over the last couple of years where that came from. You talked about this fluid, more influx of talent that can kind of churn a bit more and you get more people in versus this core contributor model. Can you speak to that a bit? Yeah, so I think... The original mental model I had, and I think this is pretty common across the space today, was that DAOs are just tokenized communities or communities themselves. And when I had a social token before, like back in 2020, that was very much the mental model I had, and it was all about how do you retain contributors. Now, my opinion on that has changed in the past year or so. It's become much more about how does work become fluid? How do you bring in new top of funnel talent? How do you give them atomic pieces of work? And then how do you make sure that that work is carried out? On-chain proposals is one way to do that. Right? By saying, hey, here's the work that I'm going to do. Here's the payment. Fund me to go do the work. You don't care about retaining that builder or that contributor after the work is done. They do the work and they move on. That's what a DAO should be, at least I think right, is not having a group of core contributors who are continuously iterating on product, but continuously building this inflow of talent and giving them an easy way to contribute, making it more sustainable. Is the assumption here that the DAO is a bit more matured, either in scope or treasury? Because, I mean, a core team maybe makes sense at a very early stage, people that are super invested, or do you think all DAOs? It's hard to say, right? I mean, people have like 20,000 definitions of what a DAO actually is, right? Maybe it isn't a DAO at first when you just have a few people. It's really a hard thing to pinpoint here, but being able to just create that passive contribution for someone coming in for the first time is really the key. That's the point where it becomes a DAO. It's when someone can start joining it and contribute and getting paid for their work within a matter of not days, but hours even potentially, right? That is sort of, at least in my mind, what a true successful DAO looks like. Yeah, and I mean, there's no shortage of work or things to do, obviously. How should builders think about the opportunities in this space when there's so many? Are there other incentives besides financial that builders should think about? Yeah, I mean, there's always two types of incentives. Right? There's the social incentives of how do I build my reputation to get more potentially 
financial incentives later, or they can, of course, the financial incentives themselves. But the on-chain reputation piece, reputation in general, is something that builders can definitely do, right? By jumping into a forum, uh, I mean, this is really on-chain data, but on-chain reputation, but jumping into a forum and contributing to a discussion or, or leaving feedback on a post is something that definitely helps you establish your trust or establish your reputation inside that community. Maybe said from the other way, how should DAOs think best about attracting builders when there is so much other opportunity? So creating a frictionless way of contribution is the best way to do that, right? The beauty of something like Prop House is that it's a really easy way to get funded for your ideas in the lowest friction way possible, right? How do we start even taking that alone and making it more frictionless, right? So it's not just you know waiting for the next round to get funded, but getting funded in, in a matter of hours or even a matter of minutes, depending on some on-chain reputation that you've built up or some shared trust so that you can go and do that work for the thing that you have that you want to do right now. The more people that we can get funded to start building for these DAOs, the better, right? So it's what are those paths that we can create as an industry for just getting more builders involved. Yeah, let's dig into it. With something like Prop House, how do you see that happening more? Yeah, so one of the biggest issues is it takes too long to get funded. It's an improvement from on-chain proposals, but how do you break that down into even smaller rounds, right? So that you have an idea that you can get a, a smaller payment of not just one to five ETH, but even just like $100. There's so much that someone will do for just such a small payment and contribute just to prove that they're a builder, prove that they're a contributor, and then build their way up. It's very likely that what Endgame might look like here is you have different stages inside of a DAO, right? Where you have sort of what level one contribution looks like and you're contributing, you're, you're building something and you're proving yourself. And then that unlocks the ability to create a proposal in level two and that is for a higher payment amount. And then level three, four, four, five, right? Like that creates this very structured way of getting new builders in the door proving themselves, reiterating on product. So they start from their MVP and now they're doing their V1. And it's much easier to allocate capital in that way when you have this kind of much more standardized way of moving up the ranks, as opposed to someone trying to like fast tracking to level five. The standardized system might make things a little bit more fluid and easier to understand for new people entering the space or entering community for the first time. What does one of those maybe level one tasks, like what would that be? You know, I think that's the most challenging part here. Yeah, because there's two things here as I see it. There's the time to payment and Prop House has helped bring that down. It's taken away a lot of the friction because you don't ask for the ETH. It's already put up and you opt in with just your wallet to ask for it. And I mean, it's been brought down a whole lot. I think we've done rounds of one ETH. I know it's not $100, And I guess to contrast, we do have the small grants team, right? Which does give out the smallest amounts. I think they've literally reimbursed $100 for like a tattoo of a noun, right? That's not like work. And so I I think I just want to understand in your opinion, because it sounds like you've thought about this a lot, maybe what that looks like more in a work context. Yeah, I think those are the right ingredients. I think the pieces are there. Now, 
How do you start to streamline it a bit more? It feels right now, like if I'm like looking outside of the balance ecosystem, right? So looking in, it seems like there are multiple places to get funding. Create a chain proposal, I can create, I can go to prop house, I can go to small grants, other sub DAOs that exist well, with the even, you know, Lil Nouns as a fork and these other forks as well. But there isn't this like one place to go to get started in building your reputation inside of that community. And if we play out the experiment just for a little bit of what would it look like to have a landing point for someone to get started in building their contribution inside of this community? It may look a little bit different, even if they're trying to go for a hundred ETH proposal for you know some really large project that they're building. If they just start from level one for a small grant, improve themselves, it may look a lot different. And you might get a lot more builders involved because they know where to start. They know where to build their reputation and then move on to the next level. I think it'd be an interesting experiment. And I think all the ingredients are there to make it happen. But that's the kind of thing that I'd like to see from the Nouns community. So you've touched on this before about it being maybe just a coordination problem. Do you think... This is just not knowing what to do or how to set it up because the way nouns works is it's usually everyone comes with the idea, but you're kind of talking about the opposite, having something set up for people to just come do. You know what I mean? But that's not really how we see things. Imagine this question, right? Imagine if you play the inverse and say, what would you do to help nouns for $1,000? If you can do anything for nouns for $1,000, what would you do, right? Instead of saying, hey, if you have an idea, come help you, we'll evaluate it and put you in the right category. It gives you sort of this mindset of, okay, how do I get the best from a nouns mindset, right? How do you get the best ROI on that $1,000 coming into the ecosystem? It just flips the script a little bit. And now anyone who has these different talents, whether you're creative or whether you're a builder or you're super technical, You come in and say, okay, how do I provide the highest possible value for this thing? And then similar to the prop house model, you're sort of competing for the best ideas. It's just how you frame it to outside contributors that matters, right? Yeah, it sounds a little bit like the mandate rounds, right? Where these are opinionated prop houses, where there's a theme about what to build or a topic. But are you talking more in like a micro level? (laughs) Yeah, Because, yeah, these mandate rounds, because we're trying to get top talent, they're usually smaller amount of winners, higher amount of ETH, just playing around with the function. Yeah, it's it's been amazing to see how popular mandate rounds are. I mean, I've just been made about the number of uh, entries to each of the one. But you could see something that's really important, though, right? The people who are submitting projects to these mandate rounds... They want to be selected. They want to prove their reputation inside of these communities, much more than the payment itself. That is the important thing here. I mean, the payment still matters, of course, but they care much more about, okay, how can I become a core part of this ecosystem by giving them these mandates of saying, hey, here's a way to build your reputation, become a core contributor in the community. That's the kind of stuff that's going to push the needle. So I think the mandate rounds have done more for the nouns ecosystem, at least in my opinion, than anything else. And they've just been amazing to see sort of the progress, especially on the nouns clients and the governance. It's been awesome. Yeah. Do you think the smaller amount of winners is important? I think it's all about just trying to throw as many ideas at the wall, right? How do you increase top of funnel 
to get as many people building as possible. That is the key here. So if you provide a really easy way for people to start contributing based off you know, a simple mandate or simple idea or an amount, then you'll start to see an influx of, of builders. But you, you just need to give them a path to contribution and mandate rounds definitely do that. Yeah. I'm just curious, do you have maybe an idea or a couple ideas that jump out at you for mandate rounds that you'd like to see? <sighs> oh, man. Also worth mentioning, you own a noun. You're part of the DAO, right? So I am. <laughs> um, just from your point of view, things that, you know, to help contribute back. Because it's interesting, these mandate rounds, they're not just building fun ideas. Like we are inviting people to come build because everything's about proliferating the meme and whatnot. But like this is the invite back to help the DAO itself. This is not necessarily meme proliferation. This is like, hey, come help our governance, right? Right. So yeah, what comes to mind for you for maybe a couple more rounds? So... The thing that I've been toying with for a while is the idea of information flow inside of a DAO. If someone has an idea of how to contribute to a DAO, where do they put it? They put it in Discord. Do they put it in Discourse? They bring it up in a community call. They put it on Twitter first. Kind of depends. There isn't like an easy way to just throw your ideas in like a very static way. I love the work that the low nouns community did and Proplop because they provided this really easy way to start saying, hey, here's an idea I have. What do people think about it? And you're able to token weight your way and kind of rank those things together and then bring them on chain. That's the kind of thing I think that the nouns community is missing is a really simple way to have an information flow in a very visible way. Because someone like me running a company I can't check the Discord at all, right? It's too much work for me to kind of scroll on it and it's to keep up and to read newsletters of figuring out what's going on. But if there's an easy way of just getting the top highlights from a way that is not just one person curating what's happening in Discord, but more of a token-weighted voting way of curating what's happening, it'd be much easier to say, here's what's happening, right? The way I check what's happening in, in nouns is by seeing the on-chain governance proposals. That's kind of my way of like checking the news each day. So that's the thing that's kind of missing for me right now is how do I just get insight to what's happening? How can I throw my ideas out there? I don't have a way of doing that right now personally. Yeah, I know there's a couple efforts, especially this last governance clients round really brought up some great ideas, whether it be delegation or yeah, replacement for discourse and Twitter and the discord because yeah, you do kind of want some centralized source of truth, as it were, of like, this is where we're all looking. This is where we're all kind of getting opinions from so that we're all on the same page and we're all kind of informed in the same way. And I know my friend Brian is working on that. And I think that because like Proplot, it is token weighted. And I think it's really important to get that feedback that discourse does not give you because you can receive a lot of good feedback on an idea but it's maybe from people that don't own nouns. But I also know there's efforts from like, I'm not sure if you're aware of the Rocco project, which is this GPT-3 AI bot that is being worked on to scrape and take all this data and kind of distill it down. Because like someone like you, I mean, we talked about your day and your week earlier. There's no way you're just going to be chilling in the Discord going back, seeing the week's worth of info you missed. But if things can be distilled, but not only that, what I think is more interesting as the DAO scales even more and we fund crazier experiments and there's like fractions and sub-factions of the DAO, you could almost subscribe to like feeds that you care about. 
you have a background in in gaming. Like maybe you care a lot about esports, but you don't care about the governance clients, or maybe you don't like prop house, or maybe you do, and you only want to opt in to like the types of info that's already distilled down into channels that you like. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. I haven't heard about the Rocker Project, but definitely seems like it will solve a lot of those issues. So I'll definitely dig into it more. Yeah. So you mentioned PropLot. Could you quickly explain, for those who don't know, what PropLot is and your involvement in it? Yeah. So when Nouns officially launched, I saw it really as like a testnet for nouns, right? Higher frequency cadence of, of distribution, 15 minutes. And so, okay, well, what's nouns going to look like in the end game is sort of what, what low nouns is probably going to look like first. And the immediate thing that I saw, which is the biggest problem, was a huge influx into the Discord of so many ideas, so many ways to improve it. And one Sunday, I was just like, hey, be much easier if we have all of these ideas in one place, like I was mentioning before, but in a token-weighted manner. So depending on how governance output is going to look like, depending on how you someone has, should match the way that ideas are also presented in sort of a platform. It's sort of this concept that people have talked about in crypto for a while, like a token curated registry, where you can start ranking items depending on the token weights assigned to them. And so that's what PropLot became. And there's a whole team working on it today that I'm no longer involved in. But it was simply just the way, okay, how do we take all the ideas that are happening in Discord and discourse and just put them in one place to get the most accurate representation of how governance is going to play out once these ideas are followed through? Yeah, it's something I thought about as well. I kind of worked on some idea board as well for Noun Center, but with some time, I do think the TCR kind of model maybe proved out to be better. And in talking to Brian about his project, I do see the tremendous benefit from something like that. And I love how you put little nouns, how you described it as the test net for nouns. I've also heard it as speed running nouns. I love that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's been awesome to see all these different experiments uh, come out. But yeah, I'm excited to see how it goes. I think it's still kicking, which is a great sign. Do you think there's any other positive or negative takeaways from Lil Nouns since we're what, five, nearly 6,000 Lil Nouns in? Is there anything Nouns can glean from that one way or the other? I haven't been too involved in Lil Nouns in recent times, so I don't know if there's something that specifically comes to mind. I did get a glimpse of Lil Nouns sort of falling into the same problems as other DAOs in the crypto ecosystem creating sort of like pod-like structures and assigning representatives from those problems. It it doesn't create a very easy way to have fluid work, as I sort of mentioned before, uh, the more you kind of create this structure. So that's the thing that I get worried of that other DAOs have done outside of the nouns ecosystem is just creating too much structure, creating too much of these pods. I think there's this fine balance between like, how do you create a path for people to contribute? But if you start creating like this structure where you have like all these elected representatives and you can't have an easy way for upwards mobility inside of the community, it gets very tricky just to make it more appealing for new contributors. Yeah, I think it becomes maybe the go-to play to try to coordinate better. Well, it's difficult in a large group. Let's split into smaller groups, but smaller groups can branch off with their own ideas and maybe the grander vision is maybe lost and it just becomes just a coordination issue. Yeah, totally. So you said that you spent most of your time when you do check in on nouns, you're checking in on the proposals page to check the on-chain proposals. Can you talk to me about some takeaways from what you've seen? And I know you have thoughts about maybe the overall proposal quality that we've seen so far. 
<laughs> yeah, for sure. Let's get into it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think what's really interesting to me is we've been in this realm of meme proliferation of just how do we take all the creative ideas we have and create marketing experiments out of it, but none of it has translated into an effective way to measure ROI. The things that we're sort of leaving off the table is how do we fund more builders building things the nouns ecosystem? The things that I've seen time and time again from being in crypto over the last four years is that it's usually not worth the time to bring crypto to the mainstream, but it's always better to bring what's happening in crypto to other people in crypto because that's where the builders are and that's where the capital is. By having nouns represented in the real world, they're not the ones that are going to be bidding on new nouns. The ones that are going to be bidding on new nouns are the builders in DeFi who have the capital to do it and have the capabilities and the, the sort of knowledge to build new things inside the nouns ecosystem. And so if I had to say, like, what is my largest criticism of nouns, it's how do we get more crypto builders building inside of the nouns ecosystem to the point where most products being built today should theoretically be incubated inside of the nouns ecosystem that spun out as opposed to being funded by outside investors entirely. Yeah, it's kind of like two ways of thinking, two schools of thought. This not evangelism, but kind of going to the people that don't know. And I think people maybe don't think about what you're saying enough because when we hear meme proliferation, we hear we need to tell people who don't know about nouns and which is the mainstream. But what I hear you saying is, and correct me if I'm wrong, is like, don't go after the mainstream, go after, I mean, whether people know about nouns, they're not building in the nouns ecosystem. Everyone knows about nouns at this point. That doesn't mean they're contributing to nouns. That doesn't mean yeah. we're benefiting from their talent in any way. But it's not just about knowing, it's about becoming involved and getting talent from them. And the mainstream will come as crypto becomes more mainstream, etc. Is that right? Exactly. You hit the nail on the head. So what does the DAO need built, in your opinion? Yeah, I think it's exactly what we were mentioning before, but creating paths for contribution for new builders is really the big thing, right? How do we make it super, super simple for someone to choose building for the nouns ecosystem rather than taking on outside capital from investors. That is really what Nouns is, is fighting against, right? Is when capital is abundant, it's really easy just to take on sort of VC, for example. But if Nouns can capture that talent before outside investors, then you can have all of these contributors inside of the ecosystem. So we're just expanding that top of funnel as much as possible and to continuously attract new talent inside of the door and giving them an easy path to get paid for building. Yeah. Can you speak to the public goods aspect of all of this that gets brought up a lot? Funding public goods that maybe has nothing to do with nouns specifically. What's your take? Funding public goods has nothing to do with nouns. Uh, can you say more? So the way I describe nouns is the purpose is both for meme proliferation, as everyone says, but the other side of the coin is to also fund public goods. And then people talk about the amount that that gets done or doesn't get done versus focusing on proliferation. You're talking about focusing on builder acquisition. I mean, you own a noun, you're a DAO member. I am not. I'm just curious your opinion on that aspect of kind of the nouns vision as it were. How important is it for nouns to do that? And if so, like what to fund? How often to fund? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. 
Helping out the ecosystem question gets brought up a bunch, but is it important in your mind for nouns? Again, I'm, I'm asking kind of like as a DAO member. Truthfully, I don't know is the answer. But what I do know is that if there is a way to measure ROI back into the treasury for funding proposals, then you can start answering the question is, is it worth funding public goods? Because if public goods, for example, are creating ownership inside of them, whether tokenizing or otherwise, then it becomes valuable. It kind of step out one aspect. But if the only way that the Nouns ecosystem is going to grow is if it becomes sustainable, if, we, if there's new entrants, new bidders coming in from actual utility being created instead of things that are not actually creating value. And that's where every other NFT project in, in DAO has failed. So we need to create actual useful things that provide real value back into the DAO to fund new builders. If we just create a bunch of public goods that people are using doesn't actually create any value, then nouns won't be sustainable. So there's kind of two sides of that. Yeah. I'm wondering when you talk about nouns to other people, what is maybe some of your favorite things about nouns or the things that you call out when describing it and maybe a favorite proposal or action or kind of how do you pitch it to people from an enthusiastic point of view? So I say that there's three things that successful DAOs have. And by the way, there are zero successful DAOs today. (laughs) But it's capital formation, capital allocation, and coordination are the three main traits. Nouns is the first DAO to properly solve capital formation. How do you actually bring a bunch of people on the internet to form capital? The jury is still out if it can solve capital allocation. There are mechanisms like prop house and small grants, of course, that is trying to solve that. But in terms of actually becoming sustainable and having ROI, that's yet to be determined. And I am definitely optimistic that it can solve that question. But we're still in trying to solve one out of three right now. Yeah. And you said capital allocation, capital formation, and coordination. Yeah. What has been your take? I know this is something you've talked about with meta governance and delegation, etc. And it's something I've thought a lot about. Can you maybe talk to governance as you see it within nouns? Because governance fatigue is something that is talked about Mm -hmm. a lot, maybe voting apathy, but you have a lot more experience and I'm sure this is widely seen across the board, across many DAOs. So is delegation the answer? Is it better to think about ways to better incentivize the actual members? How do you think about that within nouns? Yeah, it's a problem that every protocol and DAO suffers from. So how are we fixing it right now? You know, I, I think a really easy way to do it, honestly, would be how do you incentivize voting? How do you give people reputation just by voting? If you can actually give people reputation and building some sort of incentive mechanism on top of it, it doesn't have to be financial, it can be social as well. Then more people will start voting. Now, you have to be careful. You don't want people voting just to vote and not be informed vote. But that is a very simple way to solve it. I think it's a deeper question of how do you get the highest highest quality voters and people participating in governance? And that's an entirely different question. I don't, I don't think I even have the answers to. Yeah. And speaking of Prop House, in the last round, we did see Agora, which is a new governance client. Are you familiar with the delegation platform? 
Yeah, I saw it yesterday actually for the first time. It looks beautiful. Yeah, and that seems really cool a way to pitch yourself as a delegate. And I believe DAO members can kind of voice their opinion of who they would want to delegate to. And something that was interesting was as I was on it, I saw it tallies up all of your stats. You know, Brian voted on 62% of proposals. Out of those, it's been like 13 yeses, 70 no's, and zero abstains. And it's like, you just get a picture of this person pretty quickly. So with kind of introducing more social aspect of this, where these things are more prevalent and anyone can kind of see it more easily with incentivizing voting. I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm concerned about a world where when things are so much more because they're transparent now, but they're a little obfuscated. We're like, I'm not going to go and check and tally up Brian's voting history. But like when it's all there for me and I can see it, do you think people would that would just influence because they're worried about like, oh, I want to come off as more of a positive person versus constantly saying no to every proposal? Is that something to consider? Yeah, it's definitely something interesting. I mean, I know when I was first looking for a noun on secondary market, I was actually looking at the governance history of that specific noun to see what the reputation of what the noun was, because I didn't want to buy a noun that had an empty voting history. I wanted one that was actually already continuously voting, for example, right? So the actual participation part matters because you want to say, okay, who's going to be an actual contributor inside of this community? There's many ways to build an interface exactly like Agora, right? You can have a leaderboard of, okay, here are the top people who have participated, the highest voting percentage, right? Or here are the people who generally lean yes. You can start having these breakdowns of different ways of presenting that on-chain data. And that is really some of the coolest part about having on-chain data. So seeing more things like Agora, I'm sure that you're just going to see these political party sort of form of what sides people kind of lean towards and how they affiliate themselves with these different parties. And so it's just a bit amazing kind of seeing the progress. But Agora is a step in the right direction. We're wrapping up here, but I did have a couple more questions. Do you see the announcement from Tessera recently about the Nounlets? I did not. Oh, okay. Still pretty new to me, but I think it's a different way to fractionalize a noun with governance, which I think was an issue before. Mm. And a noun could be split up into like a hundred nounlets, and then you mm. designate a delegate, just like they would represent a subdao, etc. But based off of one noun, there's not too much more information. But as we were talking about issues with like more and more subpods, do you see that maybe an issue with something like that? I don't know too much about it yet to have an informed opinion. Or maybe just other sub-DAOs in general. Yeah, I, I think the problem with sub-DAOs and governance, at least what I've seen from, from nouns, is if participation from existing nouns holders already isn't that high, sub-DAOs won't have that high participation because you have one layer of abstraction already. So if we create much more ambitious proposals or things that are much more complex and not exactly one-sided. I think we'll have more governance participation because every vote will matter. But right now we're seeing a lot of proposals that are, are sort of one-sided, at least from what I've seen recently. So when you have that scenario, it's like, well, if I'm in a sub-doubt, am I going to actually participate? Am I going to actually make a difference? Then you get that voter apathy kind of kicking in. So it's really hard. I think we've seen over time in, in other DAOs as well, a lot of these sub-DAOs being created for things like meta-governance. And Rabbit Hole also has history of meta-governance, which is a story for another time. But if governance doesn't happen on the core level, or it doesn't matter because of whatever issues there are, then you're just going to have 
across the board, these subdials are just going to drop off in voter empathy. So that's the thing I'm really worried about is if, if we create these layers of abstraction before focusing on the core issues that matter of just creating higher quality proposals, then it, it just won't matter in the end. Yeah, I think the incentive there is a lot lower. And I've personally had my fair share of like issues or, or apathy with subgroups for a similar reason. I think they're great and help for getting people in the door, right? Because it is the more approachable or attainable kind of entrance to the ecosystem. But yeah, at some point, if you're just one one thousandth of just a person in the sub DAO that owns one noun, when there's, you know, 500 members, I think the governance fatigue at a lower level like that at a sub DAO can be pretty difficult. Totally. Yeah. And then... Last question. Is there an area that Nouns hasn't dug into that you would be curious to see? And this doesn't even have to be like fixing the big problems. I just mean like back to meme proliferation, just like an area that you wish we would double down on or something we would try we haven't tried. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think zero knowledge proofs are really interesting from a means of communication. And I saw there was a prop house proposal for hating Don back, I think, in a couple of mandate rounds ago. Something like that could be really interesting for the nouns ecosystem because then anyone can voice their opinion without revealing their identity, revealing their address, right? By proving that they have a noun but haven't actually done that. And you'll just start to see more interesting ideas sprung up because I think one thing I know a lot of people feel right now, especially in the nouns ecosystem, sometimes myself, very nervous to speak up and talk about new ideas, right? Because you're afraid of like what people are going to think about them. And by having zero knowledge proofs of just saying, hey, I have a noun, I'm proving myself, not really my identity about that, you could surface much harder questions, right? And, and start to reveal some of those truths. And that's the kind of thing that I would love to see from the community, just to kind of like make things a little bit more transparent. How can we actually tackle the hard problems? Because that's what's going to make the community stronger. Yeah, I mean, Nouns has so much talent and so much incredible people and brain power, but I hear you. I mean, there's 400 and some nouns, but there's, I don't know the actual count, but it might be under 200, maybe 150-ish members. And that's not that big a group. And out of the really involved people, you know, it's probably some, you know, third of that or whatever. And so it's, you know, quickly becomes a small room. And if you know people from the outside, if you will, how do you solve for like truly speaking your mind when, you know, nouns is a daily auction, you just joined your noun number 490 and all these people have been hanging out for a year and there's a certain way of doing things. It can be tough to do that. But I think there's some exciting advantage to something like the prop house mandate rounds to bring it back to that because even though that hey anon prop didn't win it's an idea that was surfaced and was ready to go and can still go right they can still get funding and still create the thing anyways and these mandate rounds have been interesting because most proposals or smaller prop house proposals have all been people that are roughly in the ecosystem trying to throw their hat in the ring and these mandate rounds have brought in fresh new talent like you're talking about more than maybe anything else for the first time, which is so exciting. Totally. Well, I think that's a good place to end. Thank you for the time. I really enjoyed it and I learned a lot. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This was awesome. Yeah. All righty. We'll talk soon. Take care. Bye.